Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Kellen, do you listen to other podcasts? I do have a couple that I listen to, but I'm not like an avid podcast listener. I listen to audiobooks. You know, it's funny, I'm the same way. Before doing this podcast, I had some podcasts that I would listen to just a few random episodes. Usually it was like news podcasts, but I never really had any that I super loyal to and listen to a lot. And since starting our podcast, I've been introduced more to the podcasting world. It's been interesting to join some groups and forums on podcasting and learn how others are doing it. And it's interesting because there is advice that is given strongly for every podcast. If you're going to be a successful podcast, you have to do this. And now I hear it when I listen to other podcasts, but basically they say you have to have a call to action every episode. You have to tell your listeners what to do. And then, you know, you go and you listen to, to a lot of podcasts and it does feel like they're constantly like... Hold on. Calls to action regarding the content? Like if it's a podcast about like DIY home crafts, it's like a call to action. Hey, go build this craft now. Or are you talking about like to promote the podcast itself? Usually to promote the podcast. If a podcast is starting from scratch, it's usually all word of mouth and they'll say like, we've got to have you sharing. We've got to have you leaving us a review. We've got to have you do all this sorts of stuff. And, and I look back on ours and I think, yeah, we do that like once out of every 10 episodes, <laughs> we ask for some sort of action to help us spread the word. I mean, we do have the little kind of commercial, the little preview of our bonus episodes. If people want to go support on Patreon. That's valid. 
That's yeah, that's totally true. But this is one of those times where we're going to be annoying and ask for a couple of things or, or mention a couple of things that are also going to be beneficial to you instead of just diving right into the content and leaving all that stuff behind. So the first thing that I want to say is Kellen and I created a YouTube channel. It's not like we have videos of us talking or anything, but we do have our episodes beginning to be uploaded there. We've got the first eight episodes live. Kellen has uploaded his original song there as well with a bit of a music video that he created. And our episodes that we've uploaded, they they have an audiogram, so it's a little more visually pleasing than just a static image. But anyway, that's going to be an awesome resource if you have friends or family who don't listen to podcasts, but would sit down and throw up a YouTube video and listen to that. So feel free to subscribe there. You can just find it by searching Breaking Down Collapse. Having more subscribers there does help the YouTube algorithm recognize us, promote us more. Yeah, and we've been working on a lot of things kind of in the background outside of just doing the research for our weekly episodes. We plan to get some really cool videos up on YouTube in the coming weeks and months. So I won't spoil what those are going to be, but if you're interested, subscribing there will make sure that you get to see those. So the next thing I'll bring up, it's interesting, Kellen and I were talking about how the podcast is two years old and it's growing pretty rapidly. We're continually getting every month lots of new listeners. And yet, for some reason, our reviews have stayed a bit stagnant over the last little while. We've been at 161 reviews, and the more positive reviews that we get, the more likely podcast platforms are to recommend us. So if you've had a positive experience listening to the podcast, it would help us a ton if you could leave a review, especially a written review, wherever you listen. It just helps us get seen by more people, and it helps more people know that they can trust investing their time in listening to the podcast. Yeah, we feel fortunate that people have been very kind and have given a lot of glowing praise in most of those reviews that we've received. But what we get a lot more of is people reaching out to us privately, like messaging us directly and saying, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness in the podcast. And it's been beneficial to me personally because of this, this, and this. And we appreciate hearing that. And and we would just love if beyond just telling us personally that could get put into a review so that when this podcast gets recommended to somebody else, you know, if, if you're trying to introduce a family member to collapse and you send them the podcast, just like when somebody buys a product on Amazon, usually they're going to look at how many ratings there are and how high those ratings are. It just builds a little bit of credibility and will help get the message to more people. Well said. And so the last point I'll bring up here just quickly is that this podcast and its growth has come from primarily Reddit. That's where this was born. You know, the first three episodes that we recorded, I I posted that right to Reddit, see if anyone was interested. And it's pretty much the only place that I have ever marketed the podcast, if you want to use that word. Up to this point, we really have done nothing else. And so many of our listeners come from there. And we know that the podcast has been helpful to a lot of people who frequented the Collapse subreddit. So one request that I that I make is if you are on the subreddit, if you're someone that frequents it, and you see people posting comments or posts, and there is anything relevant to them that they could find in the podcast, whether it's answers to their questions, or if they seem like they might be new to Collapse and, and could benefit from listening, the most growth that we see in the podcast is when it's talked about in the subreddit. And so I'm not saying to go out and spam the subreddit with Breaking Down Collapse, but if you feel like it could be helpful to somebody 
and it's relevant to the conversation, linking to the podcast and explaining maybe how it's helped you learn about that topic is huge for us. And Corey, I guess I wasn't sure that this was the route you were going to go as we started this episode, (laughs) you know, kind of jumping in and saying, hey, if you're listening and you enjoy it, like help us out, help us grow the podcast. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think we can be transparent that there's multiple motives there. Like on one hand, we just feel like this is content that more and more people need to hear. Like the more people that become aware of collapse, it's like helping so many more people open their eyes to reality and hopefully prepare themselves, prepare their communities, try to mitigate some of the damage. Like it's all going to be a net positive. Maybe a little more selfishly, you know, Corey, you and I talk all the time about how it would be so awesome to grow this to the point that we could make a meaningful living from it and dedicate our time to it and produce even more content and better content, you know, and and as we talk about resiliency and how we have this framework we've been building around that, there's so much that we want to do that we think will provide a lot of value to a lot of people. But if you're listening, you might forget or not, might not even know that we're just two normal guys with normal full-time jobs. We do the research and the recording for this podcast, like in the evenings in our limited spare time. So the more we grow the podcast, the more it helps us kind of achieve that dream of what we hope to deliver in the future. Yeah, well said. Well, with that, let's just dive right into this week's topic, which is part two of what we spoke about last week, which was how we're seeing collapse play out today in different countries around the world. As a recap, last week, we talked about what's happening in Sri Lanka in Venezuela, and in Lebanon. And there was a bit of a theme to that, which was that so many of the problems, the consequences of collapse as they happen, show themselves through economics, right? All three of those countries had political issues, sort of governmental mismanagement that manifested in the end through economic issues, which impacted the people of that country. This week, we have four countries that we're going to be speaking about. And I think there's a little bit more of a theme to these four countries as well. They are all suffering very similar issues to those of the countries we spoke about last week, but there is an added element to many of these, which is some sort of violence, whether inflicted by their own governments, by each other, or by foreign states. And really, the one thing you taught me from the start with Collapse, Corey, is that it's so multifaceted. That's why it took the first eight episodes of this podcast just to give me like a basic framework. There's not just one culprit. There are multiple causes. And so sometimes it's economic conditions and desperation that cause like protests and rioting and internal conflict, civil war. Sometimes it's internal conflict or external conflict that results in poor economic conditions. And even trying to parse those out, it can be kind of a chicken and the egg scenario. But I think you're right that the four countries that we're going to talk about today if we had to categorize, would fit more cleanly under, you know, internal, external unrest and conflict. In the episode that we did on historical collapse, it was pretty clear to see that it's very rare for just one thing to cause collapse. It always seems to be this perfect storm of issues happening simultaneously over a period of time until eventually there's a straw that breaks the camel's back and it all comes tumbling down. Which I've just got to say is funny because when you first said, hey, what do you think about collapse? 
when you hear that word, I remember saying, like, sounds like some big crazy event like Pompeii when a volcanic eruption just covers a city or, you know, collapse took place when a giant meteor struck and made dinosaurs go extinct. And yet since then, I've learned that's the exact opposite, right? We're not talking about one improbable singular event. We're talking about systematic issues that all kind of combine to result in the decline of a civilization. So I think the point that we're trying to get at is that while there might be an overarching theme to some of the things that these countries are experiencing, there's obviously so much at play. And while each country might be suffering similar consequences, people might be suffering in similar ways, the causes are not all the same, though some may overlap. For example, last week we talked a lot about how a lot of developing countries are suffering right now food and energy crises because of the war in Ukraine. But each country also suffers its own unique dynamics and consequences that determine when and how hard those collapses happen. So with that, let's dive into the first one here. We're going to talk about Myanmar which was formerly known as Burma. If you're not super familiar with Myanmar, it's a country with a population of 55 million people, so about a sixth of the United States, but its population density is more than double that of the U.S. So it's a much, much smaller country in size and with double the amount of people per square mile or square kilometer. And Myanmar is no stranger to civil conflict. This is something that its history is filled with struggles for power, both from within the country and from without. During World War II, Japan briefly took control of the territory before it was taken back, and, and there was these back and forth struggles for power there. There's also been a lot of ethnic conflict. The country has more than 130 recognized ethnic groups and some ethnic groups that aren't recognized. So there's no way to trace all of the issues that Myanmar faces to, you know, one single aspect like we're talking about, but a mixture of all of these historical issues and present issues coming together. So prior to 2021, Myanmar was in the news frequently because of the persecution that the Rohingya Muslims were facing in the country. Myanmar is predominantly Buddhist, and so Rohingya Muslims are considered a minority. And even though they've been in the country for centuries, they say they've been there since the 1500s and there are records of that, the government refuses to accept it and basically denies them citizenship, calls them illegal immigrants. And so because of that, there's a ton of institutionalized persecution that happens there. And I mentioned earlier that the country has 130 or more ethnic groups that are recognized, but the government refuses to recognize Rohingya people as an actual ethnic group. So back in 2016, they started to flee in mass from the country. There was news and reports of soldiers raping, killing, imprisoning them, sort of this increased persecution. And so since 2016, at least three quarters of a million Rohingya Muslims have fled to Bangladesh and other neighboring countries. And they're now living, many of them, in what are believed to be the highest density refugee camps in the world. You think about Bangladesh and the issues that it faces as a country already, just with disagreements with its bordering country, India, with the climate change issues there to rising sea levels and how low-lying of a country it is, other flooding that they've had recently, and they have a massive population already. So that just highlights one really specific example of the sort of ethnic issues that are happening there. But over the last decade, 
since there was conflict and a revolution that happened in 2007, Myanmar had started to make some modest gains in its economic situation. It had lowered poverty levels somewhat, and it was it was starting to have a more clear path towards development. But that all changed last year in 2021 when the military enacted a coup and took control of the government entirely. Basically, they claimed that the elections that had happened were fraudulent. The winning candidate had widespread support. They had received something like 83% of the votes. And there's no proof whatsoever that there was any sort of fraud. This seemed to just be an excuse for the military to take over. They jailed political leaders. The winning party is called the NLD, the National League for Democracy. And many of its leaders were jailed. And the military took control of the nation's infrastructure. There's a pretty famous or popular video that went viral you may have seen of tanks rolling down the road while a woman in front was teaching an aerobics class, like a yoga class. And it's just kind of this iconic footage of someone trying to do something normal with this backdrop of just intense military show of force. Now, one interesting dynamic to Myanmar is that many of the ethnic groups there have their own insurgency forces, and a lot of them actively fight against the military that's taking control. The military is struggling to control all of these different forces, these opposition forces, these insurgencies, this guerrilla warfare. And if they're not technically already in a civil war, geopolitical analysts believe that it's imminent. There's a mini-series that Robert Evans does on his podcast, It Could Happen Here, where they take four episodes and they break down what's going on in Myanmar and they talk about stuff that's happening behind the scenes, specifically with some of those insurgencies, how they're 3D printing guns and how they're fighting against the military. And that's a pretty fascinating listen. I can link to those in the description. But all of this is happening, like we mentioned, in the backdrop of the pandemic with Ukraine war. And while the economic situation right now isn't as bad as those that we talked about last week, like Sri Lanka, Venezuela, Lebanon, but the UN is concerned that Myanmar might be on the brink of absolute catastrophe. But all that's not to say that the situation isn't terrible already, because it really is. Their economy contracted 20% in 2021 alone after the coup, and International governing bodies have put a bunch of sanctions on them because of the humanitarian crisis regarding the Rohingya Muslims and because of this coup as well. And it further kind of just shows that sanctions against a government work under the assumption that that government cares about its people, right? It's usually the people that end up suffering the most because of those sanctions as GDP lessens or as they can't get vital imports into the country. Poverty levels increase. But when you have a military government that's taking control of power under false pretenses, is controlling the people, is fighting actively against the people, sanctions just end up hurting the everyday family just trying to get by. Myanmar is currently coming up on a shortage of cash, and the U.S. dollar is becoming more expensive in the country, which sounds really familiar to what we talked about last week that has already caused these huge issues in those other countries. Since the beginning of 2021 alone, Myanmar's lost 1.6 million jobs thanks to the pandemic and the coup. Just in 2018, the employment rate was 99.1%. So virtually everybody who wanted a job had a job. But with that loss of 1.6 million jobs, that dropped that employment percentage down to around 92%. So wiping out 7% of the jobs in a year. And all of those gains made 
to wipe out poverty and GDP over the last decade were wiped out in literally just a matter of months. Yeah, I imagine one of the quickest ways to take a stable country and basically destroy its economy, cause like a breakdown of systems, and ultimately a collapse is to throw a bunch of internal conflict into the mix. You talked about you know, that being on top of the pandemic and on top of other issues that they were already facing. But how could things not fall apart when you've got the government itself overtaken in a coup by the military and different groups and factions all fighting against each other? Like that video that you described of the woman trying to do yoga or some sort of aerobics while there's military tanks rolling down the road. It just so perfectly gives a visual of essentially how impossible it is to maintain normalcy when you've got all this intense internal conflict in the country. Yeah, when we talk about, you know, catabolic collapse and how there's a struggle for resources and where to allocate resources and the impact that it solely has on infrastructure, infighting like this just accelerates that hugely because not only are we not putting investments into maintaining and upgrading infrastructure or actively wreaking havoc on it through the violence, right? Bombs, explosions, sabotage, all of these things that, that makes things work less, that makes doing the things that were already hard before regarding supply chains, transportation, all these different things, it makes it that much worse. Meanwhile, we're starting down this economic spiraling. It becomes a feedback loop. Less people have jobs, less people are making money, they can't spend that money in the economy, there's less taxes to go towards infrastructure, and the situation is currently ripe for a massive humanitarian crisis on the levels that we're seeing in other countries as well, especially in regards to food and fuel thanks to the war in Ukraine. Right now, because of the supply chain disruptions, because of the war in Ukraine, and because of the coup, Myanmar has half of its population now living below the poverty line. And I'd love to have hope for the citizens, for the people of Myanmar. But if they're already at that desperate of a situation in which, like you said, half the people are below the poverty line, there's all this continual infighting, the economy is declining, like there's not a quick fix for that. There's there's not an easy turnaround. And so from what you're describing, it's sad to me to think that it's only going to get worse for the people there. Yeah, you know, we talk about the countries last week that were trying to work to get aid, right, to get help. And they were struggling to get that help because their governments weren't steady or trustworthy enough yet. And then you think of a country like Myanmar where, I mean, there is no government. It's the military that's got control. There's no hope of receiving that type of aid. And especially when you consider that the opposite's happening. Not only are they not getting aid, they're being sanctioned. So conditions are not in an area of right now where they have the option to improve, things will likely just continue to get worse. Well, I've got to say, I hear a lot of similarities in what you describe with the country of Myanmar to the country that we're going to talk about next, which is South Africa. You know, you mentioned that the government in Myanmar was basically persecuting those Rohingya Muslims. South Africa has a complicated history. If you've heard the term apartheid, which I didn't know this before, but it means apartness in the language of Afrikaans. Basically, it was this system of legislation that upheld segregationist policies for a very long time. You know, you think about 
how tragic it is that racism even exists. And like in the United States, how long it took for minority groups to get a lot of the same rights. And and obviously there's still lots of racial issues and tensions going on today. But in South Africa, you know, in 1948, the National Party gained power. It was an all-white government, and they immediately started enforcing all these policies of racial segregation. So under apartheid, if you were not white, you were forced to live in separate areas from whites and use separate public facilities. I know there were a lot of other policies. You know, blacks were not able to own property in many cases. And these laws remained in effect for decades. Like we're talking clear up until the 90s before some of these started to get repealed. And what's interesting is that individuals that are white in South Africa are considered a minority. So it's the minority in power persecuting and upholding segregationist policies against the majority. Finally, in 1994, you know, Nelsa Mandela is sworn in as South Africa's first democratically elected president. That was after there had been a lot of violence and confusion and threats and all sorts of issues in South African politics in the 1980s. So it it has definitely been a roller coaster ride for South Africans. And there's been turmoil. There's a history of turmoil there. But now the state that we're in with South Africa, you know, the World Economic Forum claims that the the participants of it, you know, these 12,000 leaders of business and government and academia, they believe that South Africa is realistically at risk of state collapse. Some of the top five risks here, number one, prolonged economic stagnation. There's also employment and livelihood crises, state collapse, failure of public infrastructure, and proliferation of illicit economic activity. Like it's not looking pretty right now in South Africa. Unemployment reached 35.3% in the fourth quarter of 2021. That means over a third of South Africans. And the highest rate of unemployment is with the age group of 15 to 24. So those that are younger, and that's at around 66.5%. So the result is that roughly a third of the South African population depends on the state and is unemployed. Those facts alone would be shocking if you weren't aware of the situation in South Africa. But this next one is almost more alarming to me. South Africa is the most unequal place in the entire world. Corey, you and I at one point talked about the Gini coefficient. It kind of helps you understand the wealth gap in a population and the rates of inequality. If you're at zero, that means everyone's totally equal. And if you're at one, that means one person holds 100% of the wealth. So between zero and one, that's how this Gini coefficient is rated. To give you some context, The United States has been reaching alarming levels. In 2018, the U.S. had a Gini coefficient of 0.49. In 1789 France, we're talking like the type of social and economic environment that resulted in the French Revolution. The Gini coefficient of the nation was 0.59. In South Africa, the Gini coefficient in 2018 was 0.67. So you're seeing huge rates of unemployment, poverty, 
an enormous wealth gap and there have been economic concerns and essentially a, a crisis ever since 2008 in South Africa. The growth of the economy has been very slow. You know, between 2008 and 2016, we're talking about an average growth rate of just under 1.7%. They were seeing high inflation before, you know, the rest of the world in 2018, and, and they hit a technical recession in 2019. So you might think, like, how did South Africa get to such a terrible situation? Well, first, they were already in that state recession in 2019 before the pandemic, but then the pandemic hit, and you know, production came to a halt. They had hard lockdowns that caused businesses to shut down, some of them temporarily, but some of them permanently, and millions of people lost their jobs. In July of 2021, there was this outbreak of internal violence. Businesses, shops, warehouses were destroyed. There were incredible amounts of looting. You know, I I watched some videos And it's so intense. You've got these burning buildings and masses of people running around in the chaos and you're seeing all the mass looting. This cost the economy at least a billion dollars in South Africa. And it also resulted in another 2 million people going jobless. If that wasn't enough, then they got hit with these really heavy rains in certain parts of the country. And it caused a lot of major infrastructure damage. That meant even more businesses had to shut down and even more people lost their jobs. And then the Ukraine war began and that resulted in a big increase in food prices and fuel prices. And this kind of series of events with things just piling on top of each other and getting worse and worse was all taking place right at the same time as some serious corruption in the government. We could talk a lot about all the corruption that took place. President Jacob Zuma And the ANC, if you've heard about any of that in South Africa, we're not going to go into detail here, but it was just this complex series of of corruption taking place. It resulted in even more uprisings and protests and infighting. And you get these political opposition parties trying to make a difference here. It was really interesting. One individual, his name is Musi my Manny was one of the leaders of an opposition party. And in an interview that I watched, he said, we've got to learn from the Kenyans. We must first be liberated and then we must liberate ourselves from the liberators. And, you know, he gave some hopeful messaging saying like, our problems are not insurmountable. You know, we can face this as a nation. There's a lot of messaging that's trying to build hope in the South African people. But if you're talking about collapse being defined as a a breakdown in social order and systems. You know, South Africa has definitely seen its fair share of that and it's an ongoing situation. You know, one of the things that sticks out to me with Africa is the crime rate there. You know, you talked about the looting and everything that happened last year. I've seen some interesting videos. I remember one where it was a video taken by from the inside of like a Brinks truck. I don't know if it was Brinks, but it was like that where they were moving money around in like an armored vehicle. And they were basically ambushed and it was just the whole, the way they reacted to the ambush and all these comments saying, oh yeah, well, this is just South Africa. That's these guys' job every day. And I wondered if that was just a stereotype, you know, something that you kind of, people just talked about. And so it seems that way, but it turns out that South Africa does have the third highest crime rate in the entire world with only Papua New Guinea and Venezuela being higher. 
some half a million people have been murdered there, documented as murdered there in just the last 30 years, less than 30 years, actually, since 1994. And one survey done by the South African Medical Research Council found that one in four men admitted to committing rape. And South Africa has one of the highest rape rates in the world. So you can talk about lots of different definitions of what collapse is. Would we say that South Africa has collapsed? Perhaps not. But its conditions, its economic stagnation, the conflicts and issues with resources, it, again, like Myanmar, seems like a place that is especially vulnerable right now to worsening conditions. So these next two countries that we're going to talk about, the situations there are more widely known. They are mainstream. They've been talked about a lot. But we wanted to cover some of the basics about what's happening there. We're not going to go into extreme depth like we have with these first two, but they are still worth talking about. And so the first one we're going to talk about here is Syria. Syria has been in the news a lot for the last more than a decade now due to the civil war which is really a proxy war that's been happening there. So this war started in Syria during the Arab Spring. And what's interesting is that it started as just peaceful protests from people trying to make claims against corruption, against high unemployment, lack of freedoms from the government. But the government reacted extremely harshly. They cracked down really hard and they killed people at the protests. Because of that shed blood, protests exploded. People demanded the removal of the president, who is Bashar al-Assad. So from there, civil war broke out. Um, there was hundreds of opposition groups that sprang up. And while many of them at the beginning had the intention of defending themselves, of protecting themselves, it ended up turning into aggression against each other and against the government. And it's become this complicated mess of groups fighting each other, and then also outside nations stepping in, providing money, providing weapons and training to whatever their own cause was. Uh, and some of these fights are for religious reasons. Some are ethnic. And there's one thing I want to read here. I thought this was interesting. This is from a CNN article. It's just to give you an idea of some of the complexities with this war. It says, The war may have started out as an uprising against President Bashar al-Assad, but now it's a free-for-all. ISIS has lost control of most of its territory after it came under attack from all sides. But victories over ISIS mean that the other combatants are now freer to attack each other. Turkey opened a new front against the Kurds in northern Syria in January. The Kurds, including the YPG, had been among the most effective fighters against ISIS. Rebel groups such as the Free Syrian Army are fighting the regime. And there are also competing Islamic groups like Jabhat Fateh al-Sham. And that's just the half of it. Russia supports Assad and is fighting ISIS. The U.S. is also fighting ISIS but does not support Assad. It has bombed Syrian military targets in retaliation for a chemical attack on civilians. The U.S. is backing the YPG and Washington and Ankara are NATO allies. But Turkey sees the YPG as a terrorist group indistinguishable from the Kurdish separatists on Turkish soil. Iran and the Iranian-supported Hezbollah militia are backing Assad. And the outbreak of fighting between the Turks and the Kurds just might give ISIS enough breathing room to regroup. So I just read a bunch of stuff that probably didn't make sense, and it wasn't meant to. I'm not going to go into any detail explaining it, because I don't understand it. The idea is just to show that there are so many interconnected and complex relationships here. So many f groups fighting for what they believe in. There's no coherent structure to it, which is the way that, despite popular belief, most civil wars end up playing out. Yeah, as you were describing that mess of dynamics and interactions and 
groups fighting against groups. I was just trying to visualize what that would look like if you were on a whiteboard. If if you were saying, you know, here's this group and they're fighting this one and this group cares about this and is fighting this one and this one and is allied with this one that's fighting this one. I think by the end it would just look like a bunch of scribbles. Like what a chaotic situation. The CNN article that I just read from actually does have an image where they tried to describe the relationships and they tried to organize it the best they could. And yeah, it's it's basically an image with 20 different bubbles with each different group in them and then a hundred arrows pointing to different groups, some in blue, some in red to show allied relationships versus enemy relationships or adversarial relationships. And yeah, it. I mean, I couldn't follow the image too much to make any sense of it. But the important part to our conversation here is the effect that this has had on the country and its people. So regarding deaths, there's a range of estimated deaths. The numbers are so large that it's impossible to get an exact number. The United Nations has verified at least 350,000 civilian and combatant deaths over the last decade, but they've warned that they know that's an undercount of the actual number. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights has documented the deaths of 500,000 people, but they estimated that the actual toll is more than 600,000 people. There are 13.5 million displaced Syrians, uh, representing more than half of Syria's total population. Half of those displaced Syrians are still within the country, and half of those have fled. Just for a little more context and numbers regarding how it's affected people, an update from the UN Refugee Agency says that today 14.6 million people in Syria rely on aid. There are only 22 million people in Syria. 1.2 million more than just one year ago. More than 90% of Syrians live in poverty. Gender-based violence and risks to children are on the rise, while potential exposure to explosive ordnance remains high with one in two at risk. So 50% of everyone that lives in the country is at risk for explosive ordnance. Food insecurity has touched new records with 13.9 million people going hungry every day, a misery compounded by wheat shortages partly due to war in Ukraine. Nearly half of Syrian children are out of school and vulnerable to child labor, early and forced marriages, trafficking, and recruitment by armed actors. Then they say, in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt, who have generously hosted refugees and continue to do so, socioeconomic pressures have pushed the numbers of Syrian refugees and host communities needing humanitarian assistance to 20 million in 2022 from 10.4 million in 2021. So the number of people needing humanitarian assistance from the Syrian crisis has doubled just since 2021 to today. And they say that their appeal, again, this is the UN Refugee Agency, they're making an appeal for funds to be able to help them. Even their appeal will directly target approximately 12 million out of those in need. So just over half are they even trying to be able to help. And that rapid growth just in the last year goes to show that this issue in Syria, this is not something of the past. It's not talked much about in the news anymore. It used to be all over the news all the time. And though it's fallen out of the news cycle a bit, this still just goes to show that there are huge, huge issues happening there and it's increasing. To think that more than 90% are in poverty. Before 2010, 98% of people In cities, and 92% of people in rural communities had reliable access to safe water in Syria. Today, only 50% of people have that same access to reliable water. Lastly, an estimated 60% of Syria's population suffers from food insecurity, 
and that represents a 57% increase since just 2019, and that's the highest number ever recorded in the history of Syria. So again, even though they've been at this war for a decade, they're just now starting to see, again, these sort of rapid increases in food insecurity exacerbated by global issues in supply chains because of the war. Yeah, and these countries that we're discussing are at various stages of decline. You know, Myanmar is in an awful situation right now. South Africa is in an awful situation right now. Maybe things will get better in those countries. We sure hope so. But they're on a downward trend. They continue to decline. But neither one of those two is in nearly as desperate of a situation as Syria. They have progressed much further down that collapse pathway. And when you talk about those kind of numbers, like such extreme poverty and food insecurity and lack of access to clean water, the deaths, the number of people fleeing the country, like that, if that's not a collapsed nation, I don't know what is. And you know, it's interesting. We talked about last week how there's a difference between collapse as we talk about it from a complete global system than a country. And part of that reason is because while people may be able to flee a country, you can't flee Earth and get aid somewhere else. When you think about Syrians, half of those displaced have left the country, approaching 7 million people, and those within the country are still suffering from food shortages. So you can imagine the deaths, the suffering, if all those 7 million had remained in the country, right? They were able to leave. They're hopefully receiving aid from these other countries where things are more stable. But collapse on a global scale when there is nowhere to flee, you have the same amount of people buying for the lesser amount of verses, and that's when things become especially catastrophic in the number of deaths. Corey, you sent me a couple of videos that were really well done, and they were so sad, right? These videos trying to depict what life can be like in a situation like this. You know, it's a bunch of little clips that have been pieced together of a young girl who goes from living a normal life to living the kind of life that many of these Syrian refugees have to live. And, you know, it's staged, it's acted out, but it portrays the message so well. I've been thinking about it ever since you sent it to me. Yeah, so these videos are on a YouTube channel called Save the Children. It's titled Most Shocking Second a Day Video. And like you described, it shows the life of a young girl living in the UK as she goes through living a normal life when things start to turn chaotic in the way that they did in Syria. And the whole idea of the series is to basically say, just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening. They're showing that young Syrian children who are going through what this girl is going through, her personality, her life is just as important as someone in a first world country. And like you said, it is heartbreaking. I don't cry much, but those videos make me tear up thinking about that being my daughter. So we'll link to those videos if you feel like being sad. You can check them out. But in reality, they are really powerful tools to kind of help empathize and understand sort of the human toll and impact that wars like this have on people. All right. Well, the last nation that we're going to discuss, I think we'll spend the least amount of time discussing. And it's because it's one that everyone has already heard so much about. It's been on the world stage. This is the country of Ukraine. Unless you just live under a rock, you're very aware that there has been a war taking place in Ukraine as a result of Putin 
the Russian president and his aggressive attacks. Rather than spending a whole lot of time recapping how they got into this situation, I just want to share a few facts, or at least estimated numbers, for where the situation is at currently. And as you all know, this is ongoing. So the first is just the number of casualties. And I'll just say it is a wide range because depending on what source you get your information from, the numbers will look very different. So for example, the Ukrainian government is claiming that somewhere between 12,000 and 28,000 civilian casualties have taken place. Whereas the United Nations might say something more like, that's just under 5,000 that have been killed, but you know, a little over 6,000 that have been wounded. You know, if you ask the Russian government, they're going to say that they've killed 23,367 Ukrainian forces. But the U.S. estimate is that it's somewhere between 5,500 and 11,000 Ukrainian forces that have been killed. You know, the government of Ukraine will say that they've killed over 36,000 Russians and, and Russian allied forces Whereas the U.S. estimates it's more like 16,000. You know, there's a lot of different numbers floating around out there. And like I said, a huge range. It's just an estimate and you can't be sure which source to trust. The one thing we do know is that thousands of people have been killed in this war in Ukraine. To me, it's so interesting because we got to watch all of this happen in real time. When things in Syria began. I was pretty young. I wasn't paying attention necessarily. But I got to watch as the tensions rose in Ukraine and there were threats coming from Russia. And it was really interesting to see so many people downplay that and reject that. And you got a glimpse of normal life in Ukraine at that time to see that it was just this bustling country used to threats coming from Russia it was used to this type of thing. And to go from, in just a few short months, what Ukraine was, what Ukraine is now, and the continued battling and fighting, I really hope not to see Ukraine of the future be the Syria of the present. And those videos that we were just talking about, those second-a-day videos, there were all sorts of comments on the, the YouTube video from people saying, I live in Ukraine and this is how I feel now. This is, this is, it perfectly explains the situation for me going from living a, t- a totally normal daily life to bombs falling around me, becoming a refugee, trying to flee the country, that sort of thing. And so while the number of deaths may be unknown, it's certain that the lives of everyone living in the country have been impacted deeply. Yeah, and another number, we talked about the deaths, and one thing you alluded to there, Corey, is um, the number of people that have just left the country. That's another one where it's hard to pin down a solid number, partly because it's constantly changing, and partly because you're getting different sources and different estimates, but it is estimated that more than 8.8 million refugees have left Ukraine. And then another estimated 8 million people have been displaced within the country. So in just a matter of months, the actual numbers of people that have left the country are greater than those that left Syria over a decade. And while it may be a smaller portion of the population because Ukraine's a much larger country, it still represents a huge number of refugees that neighboring countries are giving aid to. Yeah, and what's really interesting to me here is I probably could have 
dug deeper as I was doing research, but this number was given like a month and a half to two months ago. And so we're talking about 8.8 million leaving the country, another 8 million displaced within the country, and yet that's an outdated number. It's probably quite a bit higher than that. However, what I saw is that there were so many numbers coming out, so many news sources and, and reports and organizations all claiming the number of refugees leaving Ukraine in you know March and April and May. And then people kind of stopped talking about it. So it's a little bit harder to find those numbers now. But by just the 20th of March, right? And you'll remember that this war in Ukraine broke out in February. So in that short of a period of time, approximately one quarter of the country's total population had left their homes in Ukraine. So again, you can probably look a little bit deeper than I did and find more updated numbers, but we're talking about thousands killed. We're talking about millions and millions that have been displaced. And the next estimate I'll share is the economic damages. So a report came out over a month ago. It claimed that Ukraine at that point had withstood roughly $92 billion in damage to civilian infrastructure. And then when you start to factor in, you know, the damage to properties and city streets and infrastructure, but also economic losses from businesses being disrupted or shutting down. Some of the estimates is is that's expected to reach $600 billion or more. And again, I'm, I'm sharing these numbers from a report that came out a few weeks ago. So we won't go any deeper on the Ukraine issue unless you have more you want to add there, Corey, but you know, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars, thousands of deaths, millions of displaced people. It is a country that in such a short period of time went from being a relatively normal, thriving place, like you mentioned, to uh, such a devastated country. So Kellen, from these last two episodes, we've talked specifically about seven different countries, the collapses that each one faces. And for me, I feel like in Diving deeper and learning more about these, it's helped me to empathize more and and understand the human toll that's happening around the world. We've talked about this a lot about how it's really easy to kind of turn away from these types of things and not pay a lot of attention because it hurts to do that. And so I hope these episodes have helped not only to understand more the situation that people are currently experiencing throughout the world, but also why they're experiencing them and being able to view those mirrors and those those parallels in our own countries and our own lives. I think of the U.S. and, you know, the U.S. is not a developing country. The U.S. has established itself as an empire with the global reserve currency, we have so many things that keep us stable and strong and that allow us as its citizens to continue to enjoy the privileges that we do. But I also, I look at what's caused these other countries to collapse and I see that we are experiencing many of them. If the U.S. didn't have those strengths that I just mentioned, we could very well be the ones that are already in the same situation as other countries. You talk about countries that have histories of conflict and histories of racism and ethnic violence, of political corruption, of inequality, countries with internal political polarization, of fiscal mismanagement. And then you talk about things like lacks of freedom, which are things that I don't think we've felt too much up to this point here. But with recent Supreme Court rulings and future Supreme Court rulings, it seems like there's precedent now for 
freedoms being further taken away. But the argument can be made that Big Brother, lack of privacy, and other issues within the U.S. have taken away certain freedoms as well. So my point is, the U.S. is lucky to be stronger than many other countries in these types of regards, but at the same time, we are committing the same errors that cause countries to fall. And like they say, the higher you rise, the further you fall. And that's kind of what it feels like here. One day, as a global civilization, we'll suffer a cascading failure due to catabolic collapse, energy or other resource depletion, climate change, whatever ends up being the straw that breaks the camel's back. We're all living through and witnessing the perfect storm that's happening around us. And while we don't know how long it will take that perfect storm to reach the ripe conditions to bring us all down, what we do know is that one day we will face the consequences that we're seeing in these other countries that we've talked about. And it's been very interesting and sobering to be able to take a more micro level look at what that looks like for real people. And with all of this, I think one thing that's worth calling out is if we were to go back to any previous decade we could look around the world and cherry pick examples of countries going through really hard things. Like it's not anything new for a particular country or nation to experience major challenges. I think of like the Rwandan genocide and I think of like Cambodia and Vietnam and a lot of these Middle Eastern and African countries that have had such huge challenges, such a heartbreaking levels of suffering and even death. But as we pick, you know, and talk about these seven countries that we discussed in these last two episodes, we're calling out examples that are starting to see a mixture of other factors that impact the entire global population. When you talk about climate change, like that is something the whole world is facing. When you talk about resource depletion, when you talk about the carrying capacity and growing past our our limits to growth, when all of those things start to become factors in addition to the racism and the persecution and the corruption and the infighting and the conflict between nations and the mass migrations. And, you know, it, it just is, is dumping more toxic ingredients into this like messy soup that was already the world situation. So like we mentioned before, you know, a collapsing global population isn't going to see the exact same thing in all parts of the world at once. We're seeing it in these seven countries now. There's many others that we could call out. And, you know, likely one by one, we're going to see more and more examples of these. You talked about, Corey, how this helps you to empathize. One result of doing all this research is that it makes me so grateful to be in the situation I'm in. Like, I truly am so pampered and privileged and I'm not having to face the kind of things that millions and billions of people around the world are. I hope in one way or another I can use the goodness that I've received, you know, the the great life situation that I have that many other people around the world would envy and take advantage of that in a way that ultimately helps other people. We talk about it all the time on the podcast just with every one of these conversations Find ways to help other people to be kind. When all is said and done and, and we've all faced varying degrees of collapse, to me it will be fulfilling to think I've at least made somewhat of a positive impact. <laughs>